Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving and are having a solid Christmas season, if that's your thing, regardless of the insanity of the world that we live in. I will upload a present for you on Friday the 25th, but today I want to give everybody an early Christmas present, a conversation with Dr. Cassandra Clark, who teaches history at Southern New Hampshire University and at Salt Lake Community College, and is a public historian with the state of Utah's Department of Heritage and Arts. In this episode, we will discuss Dr. Clark's academic and professional background, her work with the state of Utah, and her research on the history of insanity and the environment in the American West. It's phrenology, eugenics, and the changing understandings of brain functions during the 19th and 20th centuries. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, I'm Cassie Clark, and I am an uh, adjunct instructor for Southern New Hampshire University, where I teach history. Uh, I'm also an adjunct instructor for Salt Lake Community College in Utah, where I teach um, the survey American History Survey courses, and then I teach some upper divisional, uh, the upper divisional American History Survey courses as well. And I teach, or and then I'm also the public history marketing content coordinator for the Department of Heritage Arts for the state of Utah. Oh, cool. We'll talk about those positions a little bit as we move along here. But before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Absolutely. So I'm from um, a very small rural area in Colorado, and I went to the local college there. So I went to Adams State College. It's now Adams State University. Uh, I got a BA in secondary education there with emphasis in history, and then another BA in just history. Um, There, I just, I mean, when in BA, I just focused on regular history. Like I didn't uh, specialize in either American or European or anything else. Um, I have a master's degree in American history from the University of Northern Colorado, which is in Greeley. And there I specialized in the 19th history of the 19th century with emphasis in the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, mainly Civil War uh, and uh, religion. It was another uh, side or subfield that I worked on history of uh, religion in relation to the Civil War. And then I have a PhD from the University of Utah. My, uh, I specialized in 19th and early 20th century America with emphasis in lots of different subtopics. So race, uh, the environmental history, and the history of disability, um, and then uh, the history of scientific racism as well in general. So it's quite a it was quite a broad and <laughs> scope of me looking at it. Uh, and mainly I looked at environment and like how people understood the relationship of the brain in relation to the environments in which they lived. Oh, wow. That sounds fascinating. And so we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit more about your dissertation research um, as we move along here. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the state of Utah job that you mentioned there? You said you were a history marketing consultant? Yeah, well, I'm the yeah, so I'm the public, I'm a right now I'm a public history marketing content coordinator. I started an internship back in May with the Department of Heritage and Arts for the state of Utah, where I worked on, um, and I'm I'm just finishing up the project right now, but it's a blog series called uh, Salt Lake West Side Stories. And it's basically a, a history of the west side of Salt Lake City. And it covers all the way from pre-Columbian contact, and uh, each blog post does, from pre-Columbian 
contact to uh to the oh, almost the present i guess yeah it goes all the way up to the present um and each post features just a different people or a different type of or a different industry or a different topic that related to salt lake's west side so the west side of salt lake is typically what most people would see like it's kind of once you cross the railroad tracks there's a more diverse and like almost industrialized history where a lot of urban spaces in the United States and Salt Lake is not unique to that, but there was lots of different people who lived on the West side throughout the years, starting from native Americans uh, and native American tribes all the way until once uh, Utah was colonized by first Mormon pioneer. Well, actually by first the Spanish and then later by Mormon pioneers, Um, all the people and immigrants who moved in lived in that area is what the blog series uh, covers. My job was to, I did editing for each one of the blog posts. I designed the layout for the blog posts from in WordPress. And then I also assisted in designing the website um, for the blog series itself. And so right now all the blog posts are completed and we're just about to launch the website and I'm um, finishing, putting the finishing touches on the website uh, before I move on to another project and the next project I'll work on is uh, 2021 is the 121st anniversary or 125th anniversary of the um, Utah statehood. And I will, the state is doing a project on different things to celebrate that anniversary. And I'm working on content for K through 12 and um, I'll be doing research about the history of statehood. And then we'll be writing a script that will be presented in a video that K through 12 teachers in Utah can use to be able to teach their children or their students about uh, statehood in Jan- starting in January. And so are you working as part of a team? I mean, it sounds like since you were doing the editing, was somebody else doing the writing on these various blogs? Yes. Yeah. Uh, blog so posts? yes, that's a Yeah. That's a great question. The, the senior public historian for the department of heritage arts, his name is Brad Westwood. He did all of the research and the writing for it. And he worked with the pioneer park um, coalition. They are a group of, of businesses and other people who are interested in telling the history of the pioneer park neighborhood, which is what, um, the West side is known as. So once you get to that West side of Salt Lake city, most people refer to it as the pioneer park neighborhood or some people might. Um, and so he worked with the pioneer park coalition and they, and then he did all the research and he wrote the blog posts. And then I was presented with all the material, picked images, everything else. And then that's when I started doing all the editing and then, uh, the design for the, the blog, each blog post, as well as the website. Now, my knowledge of Salt Lake City is fairly sketchy. I visited there once, and I, as I'm a Western history is one of my focuses, so I've I've picked up on some things about Utah history. But for Salt Lake City, you're saying this is focusing on the west side of Salt Lake City. Is there a reason for the geographical kind of boundary there? Is it just the the old the west side is the older part, or what? Is there another some other organization doing the eastern part, and you glare at each other from across the street or something? Or <laughs> yeah, well, what, what is that? That's actually a great question. You know, I, so Salt Lake City and especially the historian, a lot of historians or like even public historians or even like local people who work on history, they typically tend to focus on Salt Lake City with the center as being Temple Square, which is located on the east side of Salt Lake Mm -hmm. City. So if you want to read fairly accessible information about the history of Salt Lake or Utah in general, you're always going to be oriented towards that Temple Square that, um, of course, 
members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they're led by Brigham Young. They're the ones that are the author of that. But the West Side is actually the oldest part of the city. So when Mormon pioneers originally settled in the Salt Lake Valley, they settled in uh, that West Side, which is now literally where Pioneer Park is. It's a it's a park that you can go to. You know, it's got benches and grass and everything else. Um, it, it was the site of where the original settlement was, and it was a huge fort where, where people lived. And now that fort has been reduced from like 44 acres to only like five or two or something like that. Um, and so by that reduction, uh, a lot of the history has been lost because the focus has shifted from that older West side, which became very industrialized. That's where the railroad tracks are. That's where all the, um, railroad depots are all the factories, everything. Once Salt Lake began to industrialize in the late 19th century, um, that was where all the immigrants lived. There was a Japan town, there was uh, a Greek town, and but the focus is almost always Mormon centered, which would be they would have mm-hmm. mainly lived on that east side of the city. And so it's not necessarily that. I think the the goal or. I know that the goal of the project is to really start bringing out Salt Lake's diversity and to show that beyond just Mormon pioneers, that there were a lot of pioneers that lived in Salt Lake city and helped to shape not only the city, but also bring about statehood and everything else. And that they lived on the West side and they worked on the West side because of its uh, connection to industrialization. Okay. That makes sense. So you're filling in, basically filling in the gaps that were left yes. behind when people focus on the Mormon. Okay. I got you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. That sounds like a fun um, project. It has been. It was. Uh, there was one day I edited one post where it was like there. They talked about prostitution, or the historian talked about prostitution and like dirty, you know, dirty landscapes of just sewage flowing into the Great Salt Lake. I mean, it was it was a day of me mm. <laughs> editing a lot of diverse topics that are very yeah. often controversial, especially in Utah. In Utah's like historical. I think um, reputation, it likes to really focus on the religious center and like this religious moral idea of, of Mormon pioneers. So to really get into the nitty gritty of how there was prostitution and there was drinking and there was, you know, like severely polluted landscapes uh, really helped to uh, make it way more interesting and kind of draw out the color of Salt Lake's history, as opposed to the more just hyper-focused religious uh, historical background that the LDS church often um, presents. Yeah, that's interesting. And in, in the, I live in a town called Westerville in Ohio, which is, which was the center of the anti-saloon league of the U S uh, back in the early 1900s. And so it was the center of the prohibition movement, but it was also being in central Ohio, it was a popular stopping point for the underground railroad. Oh. And so the city has kind of prided itself on being kind of, you know, a center of morality in in, in, in history uh, for, you know, helping slaves run away. The, the prohibition part, I guess, is a little bit more arguable, but, you know, there's still the morality aspect of prohibition and all that. But lately, the uh, local, uh, the local, the library has been publishing a series of kind of essays and stuff on Facebook and various other places talking about how, yeah, there was a, it was a stop on the rail underground railroad, but also in the 1920s there was a massive KKK presence here. Yeah, and that that type of thing is kind of you're bringing the new stuff into it. This kind of left out of the popular mythology is is interesting to do and it also can kick up a lot of dirt <laughs> absolutely a lot, of, yeah. a lot of angst and turmoil 
you know, I didn't get into this in my dissertation, but like Denver, I uh, really like to push this like, you know, anti or or pro prohibition type of like all the people that are active activists that are working in the early 1900s um, are pushing this forward. And they were all like, Oh, a whole bunch of them were just staunch eugenicists. You know, they were just like all about reducing right. the, the breeding practices of people uh, that they deemed unfit. And then they're all like huge KKK activity. One time when I went to the Denver public library to do some research for my dissertation, um, they had a whole bunch of material culture that you could look at. And they're like, do you want us to bring the big boxes out? And I had no clue what I was going to look at. And then when I opened them up, they were KKK hoods. Um, and it was like from the 1920s and there was one for like a six month old baby. I mean, it was extremely chilling to see, um, all this culture wow. and how much KKK activity there was when it really was, you know, they were pushing for, and they sounded like this moral center, but deeply embedded within it was this racial, um, racial divide of where they were trying to promote segregation as well as push for prohibition and everything like that. Wow. That's interesting. And it, that sounds like a really cool project. Um, if you have the link for that, I can post that in the oh. episode notes when I put this up on the uh, on the on the website. If you like, I do. Yeah, I can send that. Uh, the The Denver Public Library has a huge KKK collection uh, that from just people who were in the KKK in the nineteen teens and twenties. So I can I mm. can definitely send that. Yeah, that. And if you also want to send the link for the uh, blogs that you're doing. That'd be cool. I will. Yeah. You know, the okay. the website isn't quite launched yet, but it, it's I think it's supposed to launch next week. So by the time you yeah. get it, it'll definitely be ready. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, cool. That sounds like a really cool gig. Um, now, let's if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about your dissertation research. What was your uh, what was your topic? Um, so I wrote uh, it's a broader history of insanity and the environment in the Intermountain West. And so my research covers, uh, it's titled Landscapes of the Mind, the Brain, Space, Scientific Race Theories, and Environment in the Intermountain West from 1840 to 1950. There's a little bit of like slippage in that 1840 to 1950 date, uh, but those are the hard dates I set on it just to kind of give people a scope. Um, mm -hmm. the, the geographic space I cover is Arizona, Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado. And... I have two chapters that feature um, that talk about the construction and then uh, construction. And I think the, the actual like running of insane asylums in all full, four of those States. And then I have a chapter that analyzes phrenology and its influence on the way that people understand nature and its relation to the human brain. And then I have a chapter on eugenics and the same, pretty much the same concept and idea of how nature relates to the functions of the human brain and how to like kind of the, the bigger and broader goal of all of it was to figure out how people tried to con understand brain function and it's like relation to the environment and nature in general, and then how they tried to control brain function or how to try to control brains through um, putting people in specific design spaces. And I kind of like, I, or in the whole dissertation, I explore how those ideas changed over time, especially with the, re in relation to the rise of scientific race theories, like phrenology and eugenics. That's, that sounds like a difficult topic. <laughs> it's, it's not the normal, you know, politics war that historians tend to, it, but mental, illness and all of that that's that's 
so where okay where do we start with that so what was your overall conclusion let's start let's start with that and then we can talk a little bit yeah about how you so there. i think that's the good point and i think the the thing i'll I, that would help to clarify it too is that once i got really deep into writing it i realized that i was actually working on two separate projects mm. um and so when i do as i work on a book manuscript i have one the main manuscript that i'm working on now is uh an environmental history of insane asylums in the Intermountain West. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm going to deal with scientific race theories and things like that. But, um, but by putting the focus more on just the insane asylums, I can really focus on the concept of space and its relation to, in relationship to um, mental function, like, or how 19th and 20th century Americans understood that relationship. Um, but, and that's why it makes it way complicated even think about because mm-hmm. suddenly I'm dealing with eugenics phrenology and in, insane asylums, which are all interconnected in many ways because of the way that I, the ideology of those scientific race theories um, influenced the construction of insane asylums and their operation. But anyway, so overall what my argument is, is that uh, in when insane asylums were originally constructed there, they were constructed and designed from this perspective of there was an idealized space that people with insanity and other mental problems could enter into. And then by being exposed to that space of the insane asylum, that they would be cured essentially. And that the, the insane asylum worked as a, um, a curative or a prescription for dealing with um, insanity or other related causes. But with the rise of scientific race theories throughout the 19th century, especially with eugenics, um, people began to just lost faith and connected insanity to uh, heredity as opposed to environment. And then insane asylums just lost their status. And most people lost faith in the insane asylum as a curative space. Uh, the only that, people that really continued to hold on to this idea that insane asylums could cure uh, someone who was struggling with a mental illness were typically the insane asylum administrators and staff who worked at these. They still saw this connection in their minds of uh, brain function and me- and mental health to their environment, but they just could not seem to find the connection or help other people see that connection because of eugenic eugenics and other scientific race theories. So is this basically a version of the nature versus nurture debate? It is. You know, I don't get... Yes, it is. I don't really dive into that too deep. I think that's more for my... Um, that will come out in my book, especially with arguments that are made by by people who... Psychologists who are working... Um, there's one one guy in Denver who uh, he keeps trying to prove that nature... That nurture is the reason for uh, insanity. And it's not... Uh, as well as nature, like its environment in in the way that people dealt with and treated their children or treated other people as well as the places in which they inhabited. Um, But I don't, I don't explore that too much, but it's definitely a theme that's running through uh, underneath all of it. And especially with phrenologists, everybody is looking at this in the beginning of are people affected by their environments, both the way that people are interacting with them and the way, and the environments that they're living in. And is that is, and are those environments, the reasons why people are struggling with mental health or mental illness? So you said that it's kind of at the beginning of the process, you had people who thinking that if we could build the ideal environment, move these people into that environment, it would cure them. 
where did that idea come from? Where did, where did, what, I guess what I'm getting at is what did the environment, how did they envision the environment that people would go into? What was this supposed curative environment? What would it look like? Good. So that's actually the whole, um, the first chapter that I have on insane asylum is it covers that and answers that full question. So Dorothea Dix and Thomas Story Kirkbride were both um, activists that were living, that lived in 19th century America and their activism towards insane asylum starts roughly in 19 or 1840s as well as into onward throughout their lives. Um, Dorothea Dix is the first one to really start pushing for this creation of an institutionalized space where people with insanity or mental health problems would be moved um, into these areas. So, I mean, her story is fairly complex. Like she was a very interesting activist uh, and not your traditional woman, like what most people would assume a a woman living in 19th century America would do. They would be married and have a ton of kids. Dorothea Dix was a teacher and she did a whole bunch of work. She actually had bouts of depression, what I would assume was our depression, and struggled with some mental illness. But what happens is one day she goes and visits uh, people at a, a prison and she's and she sees these people, they're dirty, they're it, they're in poorly lit rooms, the environment they're there, some of them are chained to the wall, and she gets very disturbed by this and says that these people are, they can't be rehabilitated if they're removed, not only from the prison, which is this terrible environment that they're living in, but also if they're treated with moral care. And moral is in quotes, like she emphasized that the people were the way they were because of the environments in which they were exposed to. And a lot of this goes into that early 19th century, that um, idea of how urban spaces introduce vice and introduce um, things like prostitution and drinking and all of these bad crime into people's lives and how this like this weird dichotomy of how the, the city is exposing people to bad and negative, um, environments and how nature is still this ideal environment that is uh that other people should uh that they should be able to be exposed to but they can't because they live in cities so dorothea dick she pushes for this creation of an institutionalized space and she starts dedicating her entire life to doing this and she um and she creates this design or this idea for insane asylums but she really focuses more on making sure hygiene is proper so making sure things places are clean and well put together and, and then moral care and she wants people to be treated well she and she has like one of the examples that i give from her in my in my work is she explains that there was a woman, I mean, who knows if the story is correct or not, but there was a woman who was in prison or in a negative space and they put her in with two people and the people treated her really well. And as weeks went by, she claims that her mental health got better. Um, There's no way to verify if that story is correct, but for Dorothea, which is the whole point of my work is to show how people imagined curative spaces and then what those spaces play look like once they actually constructed them. Um, for Dorothea, she imagined that by placing people in these types of moral and what she perceived as a moral environment would help them. Now, Thomas Story Kirkbride, he worked with Dorothea, um, but not exclusively. Like, I mean, they work together, they brainstorm together for what I can see. Um, but his whole vision was an architectural space. So insane asylums as we see them like if you just run a basic search for insane asylums in america you'll usually be pushed or like a google search will send you to these 
asylum is back east um, in Massachusetts, play in in some of the more New England states, and he created this what is called a a linear plan, and um, it's this expansive plan where women were on what there was an administrative building in the middle and then women were in wings on one side and men were in the wings on the opposite side and you would place people in these uh in these rooms that were specifically designed to emphasize exposure to light and air and so uh and so he didn't like buildings that had like multiple hallways in them because he wanted airflow he felt that that was significant to improving mental health and these linear plans they're beautiful plans i mean if you look at them he really emphasizes uh the importance of architecture but they are just nightmares because they're so big because in order to expand them you have to expand outward because you can't expand deep because then that would cut off airflow and light to the patient rooms and so they have they had to have huge amounts of acreage to to play these out and lots of funding and how i kind of differ from what other historians have worked on um is i focus on not just his architectural design but also the landscaping that surrounded it. So he emphasized that not only that do they need to live in this architecture, they also need to be able to walk on well-manicured lawns. There needs to be a small farm. There needs to be walking paths, recreation, as well as scenic views. So he wanted all the insane asylums to be placed within two miles of an urban space, but not, but in a place where the, it, they didn't have to, inter- the patients didn't have to interact with the urban areas. And he believed that by putting people in these, well-designed spaces that that would be the cure-all for their um, mental illness, or at least help them to improve their mental illness by removing them from the negative environments in which they previously hadn't inhabited. Yeah, this does feel very progressive era-esque yeah. uh, in, in its, in its my, it, out, outlook on you know, people's relationship with nature. I mean, so, I mean, this seems to fit really well with like, you know, the romantics, artistic movement of the of the mid 19th century the city beautiful movement of the you know late 19th early 20th century the idea that if we can put people into a better environment they'll become better people absolutely and, and, and that, like and those better people will build a better society and interestingly like so the progressive era and that frederick law olmstead type of idea of central yeah. park or seattle or whatever you know like what what my work shows is that that progressive era, like reformist idea of getting people back to nature predates what most progressive era, you know, because the progressive era is assumed to run from like around 1890 or 1880, 1890 to 1920. Right. But like these people, so Kirkbride and Dix are pushing for this in the 19 or, Oh my gosh, I'm always in the wrong century in the 1840s. <laughs> I know I'm right. always in the wrong one in the 1840s. And then Olmsted, and everyone gains their popularity during that traditional progressive era. So like mine kind of, my work kind of pushes the boundaries of these reformist ideas and how nature can contribute to um, just human health overall uh, mm. by, by showing that ideas about this like perfect and idealized uh, well-designed space. And that's kind of the emphasis too, that, that you mentioned that comes out of the progressive era and that people really, focus on is that this well-designed space has to be somewhat controlled by human design. You know, mm-hmm. it's like humans have this like perfect and utopian I- ability to say, I'm going to create this space. That's a mixture of quote unquote civilization as well as nature. And by putting you in it, you won't become too, too uh, natural or you won't become too quote unquote savage, but you will become more 
uh, civilized by having a good balance between civilization and nature. And so you said that these types, this specific model or architecture of asylums kind of took off in the West. And that seems fitting to me because, you know, Westerners like to think that they have some sort of a special relationship with the environment that they live in. So I, I can certainly see the idea that if we can just harness the environment correctly, we can we, we, we can make everything better. I mean, it, it, again, jumping ahead a little bit, when you get, but when you get to like, uh, you know, Frederick Jackson Turner reinventing government out on the Western frontier, in a way that you've got kind of a similar mindset where you've got people kind of reinventing human humanity kind of out, out, out in the West. And so it's interesting if, that these models kind of took off in the, in the West, like you were saying. Well, well, and uh, and I, that was my. So I'll clarify a little bit more. So the insane original insane asylums that come from Dix and Kirkbride, they begin in the New England, and then okay. and then I focus on um, and then I focus on when insane asylums weren't constructed in the West, and mm. that's around that Frederick Jackson Turnerian. Um, okay. the West is a frontier, whatever. And so why I deal with Dix and Kirkbride in general in my work is that I want to show how, what, and I use two, two frames of mind to kind of contextualize this. So one is the imagined space and then one is the constructed space. And so I show how Dix and Kirkbride imagined these ideal spaces and then what actually happened when people tried to implement those spaces in the West. Um, and it's exactly what you were just saying, like the West is a space that you can uh, escape urbanization or it's, it's this weird frontier mythology, you know, mm -hmm. and it plays out there in a really interesting way that like have, you know, this debate about Ternarian, the frontier is closed. Um, my dissertation really pushes, or my research really pushes against that as well, because these, when insane asylums get constructed in the West, uh, they, it, what I think is the most ironic that I kept finding was they kept, when they would arrange for these to happen, you know, the territories would pass legislation saying, okay, we need an insane asylum. And they would say in the, in the, in the documentation, we're going to pattern them after insane asylums that are in the East. And then they would send somebody to the East that would go where that was supposed to tour like a physician or somebody to tour insane asylums to try to get an idea. They would come back and in their reports, uh, in the legislative reports, they'd say, yeah, ours look just like the designs of the East. But when you look at the actual architectural designs of the insane asylums in the Intermountain West compared to Kirkbride's designs in, say, Massachusetts, they aren't at all like that, even though they think they are. So it's all this imagined idea of that they believe they're creating these spaces, but they're not engaging in the theory that went into how these spaces needed to be in order to create this idealized area to to cure insanity um and they're not at all really even following the architectural patterns and that's because in western territories a lot of times it was they just didn't have a whole lot of money and funding and they had mm. limited space and the other thing that's unique to the west as opposed to building something in say and say massachusetts is the environment itself is the climate and so if you're building an insane asylum in arizona and it's supposed to have a working farm and access to plenty of water that is extremely almost impossible. Um, and so when they start building it, they're like, yeah, we're going to pattern them after the East. And then they have to make these adaptations 
uh, where they have sleeping porches for the summer because it's super hot and they have to, and their farm never does well. You know, they're constantly talking about how they don't have enough access to water. And now those are the things where idealized space always works well in your mind because in your mind, you always think of that you have access to all the natural resources that you need to be able to play, to, uh, fully execute that at that space but then the reality of the environment com- completely throws a wrench at it and then everyone has to adapt to that and then that leads to people losing faith in the asylums because they can't they don't function the way that they were projected to for the function when it was just an imagined space okay yeah that was gonna be my next question is you were talking about how your dissertation kind of talks about the transition from the original conception the idea that we could just put people in the right environment and they would fix it and then people kind of becoming disillusioned with that and so um yeah that that was gonna be my next question so the disillusion that came about because you know turns out putting people into even an idealized insane asylum just putting someone there alone probably doesn't do it. And then if they kind of botch the design a bit because of, for whatever reason, whether it's funding or whatever, then again, that's still not going to work. So I'm that, is that where kind of the disillusion came from or did it come, were there other scientific studies that said that that doesn't work? Where, where did the disillusionment come from? It first came, yeah. So it first came from just shoving all these people into these spaces. So most of, so Kirkbride's like ideal, insane asylum would only house up to like 220 patients and they were i mean they they housed way more than 220 people you know and one i mean like the biggest problem was is they the focus on treatment was not as important as the focus on environment and from what i can see just the smaller cases that i've seen from actual patient cases a lot of times literally removing people from their environment did help them like putting them in the insane asylum taking them out of the prison taking them out of the city where they were impoverished that was one thing that kirkbride focused on that i noticed that everybody kind of tended our legislators from different states and territories tended to overlook is kirkbride believe that the insane asylum was a space where class no longer was evident and so everybody was on it was basically treated the same and that they weren't there weren't these different economic classes that would like affect the way that people just interacted with their environments and so by putting them in there everyone would be treated the same they would be fed the same they'd be clothed the same and then a lot of the issues that he believed were causing um insanity which i think he was onto something right uh was that um would would be removed and then these people could rehabilitate by being treated equal uh but then what happens is they create these i even the one the kirkbride models that are built in the east they create these but then they just become kind of warehouses and dumping grounds for just people who are just legally pushed into them so they might be someone who was arrested for violence or somebody who has a severe alcohol problem and they're homeless and they're wandering the streets of boston and they need to get them off of them off of the streets so they just shove them into these things to the point of where they're bursting with patients and then they cannot treat them very well and then a lot of people are just really struggling with something there's violence they can they don't have enough funding to 
clothe them properly. They don't have enough funding to uh, make sure that hygiene stays up, pay for staff. All of these different factors make the constructed space a very difficult place to manage. And then, of course, the study of psychology is just brand new in the 19th century. There's not a whole lot of knowledge about the brain. And a lot of it is based off of preconceived notions about how the brain functions. And so all of these things combine to create this disillusionment. And then enter in at the end of the 19th century eugenics, which just comes out and just eugenicists just blatantly state insanity. Most cases of insanity are just inherited. And the best way to deal with it is to not only institutionalize those people with insanity, but make sure that none of them breed because they're just going to pass their insanity on to other people. And so uh, I don't see so much collectively in the general public people are buying into these are just like listening to eugenicists and being like the insane people are all wrong you know but or they're all just inherently flawed um but i do see like how legislators start connecting insanity to um heredity and then just saying okay well we need to we're going to put as many people in these spaces as possible. Um, Let's keep them in there. And they're not really focusing at all on treatment. Even when treatments start coming, they're not really focusing on those. They just keep wanting them to be cured, but they don't really care about what needs to be done to cure them. Whether it be expanding the insane asylum, expanding farming efforts, whatever, they just keep telling people to cure or then the administrators to cure without really listening to the needs that the each asylum has. And I imagine a part of that is just, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, in some ways, that makes things easier for legislators, I suppose, because if it's if it's hereditary, then there's only so much that anybody can do about it. And so let's not worry too much about treatment. Let's not worry too much about how do we fix these people, because they're just naturally this way. And so we can, you know, we can put, kind of wash our hands of them. You know, they're inferior. There's something wrong with them. There's nothing we can do about it. So let's just lock them all up. And so then maybe people become less concerned about the, the standards on the uh, standard of living that's inside those asylums and all of that. I can I can see that going in a very dark direction. Which, yeah, and that's exactly what happened. You know, like by this idea of people just are these unwantables because they're are unwanted because their brains are so dysfunctional you know the the number one goal especially in like that progressive era turn of the 20th century the number one goal is to create a utopian or a a reform america and -hmm. if there are people who cannot be reformed they need to be removed from the streets and removed from the population so that this this like idealized America can, can be able to proceed. And Mm -hmm. another, a big thing that I see all the time are people, especially for promotion of sterilization and things like that are saying that these people who are inherently flawed, uh, they need to be sterilized because they're going to be, they're just going to be drained on taxpayer money for the rest of their lives, you know? And one of the, and I see like, I don't know. I mean, I insane asylum directors, I, I only have their, so far I've only been able to access their institutional records. So like the stuff that they actually submit annual reports, biannual reports or whatever. Um, I'd like to look a little bit more and see if I can find more research on just them. Like if, do they keep diaries? Do they have personal letters? And so far I haven't been super successful at finding that. I see them as like in between a rock and a hard place. Cause I think a lot of times they really do believe that they can cure these people. Um, and they're, they just get, 
frustrated because they're flooded with patients all the time from the state and from local hospitals or, or from prisons who claim that these people have insanity. Um, and they start blaming, they, they have a series of techniques that they use to try to protect the reputation of the asylum. So for my favorite is he's an administrator out of Wyoming and his last name is Sawyer. And his, his writing is just so quirky that sometimes he's hard to get what he's talking about. But he keeps blaming the environment of Wyoming for why cases are so bad and why people are not getting cured. He's like, here we are. We're at this high altitude. People are not adapting well to the altitude. The wind keeps blowing. Um, one case in particular, uh, a, a patient dies. And he's like, it's not because of the asylum, but it's actually because of in, of Wyoming's harsh environment. And he says that the patient somehow gets out of the kitchen, goes wandering around on this in the mountains of Wyoming in the in the snow, and uh, then dies of hypothermia. And so he's he's frustrated because he's like, our farm doesn't have a long growing season. Like we need more farmland because the the climate is so harsh here. Uh, and so he's he keeps trying to protect the asylum. He's like, if we actually had more farmland, if we had better grounds if we completed the 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 planting of grass like if we did all of that stuff then we would this thing would play off better but because we don't have any of these things that's why we have such bad cases um and i see them like but then when you really dig into the like what happens to the patients on the inside these administrators are like chaining people to walls or uh utah it's it brags in its newspaper this will come out more in my future work so in my book utah brags a lot about how it doesn't have a padded room which we would be considered a padded room where they lock patients in but then there's tons of newspaper articles across the country that announced that utah has invented what was called what was a crib bed and so instead of putting them in a padded room they would put them in a bed that was that had that was literally like a little mini jail cell and they, and they would just lock them in this bed. And so they're like, yeah, we don't use any type in their administrative reports. They say, we don't use any type of like containment. We don't have a room dedicated to that. That's how advanced we are. But at the flip side, you look at the newspaper articles and they're like, yeah, they, they invented this bed that you can put people in and it's a crib bed and they're locking these patients in there. So it's the same concept only they're not, they're just playing with the terminology, you know? And so it's these very diverse or like complex places where you do see people getting help. Like uh, one of my favorite stories comes out of Arizona where it's in the 1920s and it's a woman who her brother-in-law commits her to the state hospital. By the 1920s, almost every insane asylum in the United States had changed its name to state hospital because it was trying to cast off that insane asylum negative you know, pejorative like connotation. Um, so anyway, uh, the brother-in-law, he commits her to the insane asylum and the superintendent writes the brother-in-law over and over again, telling, giving her an update of how she is asking for more money for food and clothing and stuff like that. And he sell, tells him like her health is really good. She's doing great. She's working. She's doing things for the asylum, but her mental state is still not great. And we think it's permanent. And then all of a sudden a year later, he sends a letter and he's like, actually she's doing really well. And we'd like to release her. 
And the brother-in-law says, oh, well, are you sure? Could you please reevaluate her? And so another, a few more letters exchange. And then the brother-in-law finally says, you know what? She was a big hazard to us. Like she kept wandering around at 3 a.m. in the morning. She caused my problem, my family a lot of problems. We're not sure if she should be released. So the superintendent keeps her there and says, oh, we didn't know that this that this was happening. Like, we'll just keep her here. And then I find her on the census a few years later and she's working not anywhere near her brother-in-law and her sister in just another town. So she's been released, but she never returns back to her sister. So clearly insane asylum helped her. Like she managed to leave. She had a job, you know, but like, I think that exposure to so much overcrowding and then not just lack of knowledge about how to help people with mental illness um, and how to treat them beyond just putting them in these spaces contributed to how they just did not function well and the bad reputations which they gained. Yeah, and stories like that, I can't help but wonder, you know, how mentally ill was she really when she was initially committed? Because I mean, was she? And again, you know, you know, we don't need to get into too much detail about a specific case, I suppose. But you know, there, there's kind of the idea. That there's horror stories about people who were just kind of quirky or a little bit weird that were kind of institutionalized for X number of years or for life or whatever. And that just, I don't know. And again, it's it's impossible to quantify, I'm sure. But that that type of thing, just especially stories like that, where you know they got out and everything was fine. It just makes you wonder, were they okay all along or was was there actual improvement made in the institution that was a result of the stuff that happened at the institution? But I guess it's hard, kind of impossible to say. And it is, you know, I think she, this woman in particular is a really good case to kind of think about that because it does sound like in the beginning she was having a hard time. And like when they committed her, like, I don't know what was wrong. You know, I don't know if she just had depressive episodes. I don't really know because of course it's 19 or early 20th century and they don't have the same type of knowledge as that, that even we do now. Right. Um, but it does seem like she did improve over time. So maybe she just had depression or maybe she had anxiety or maybe who knows, you know, but it does seem she improved over time. I think her story is a pretty good example of she needed some help. She got that help, but then she was stigmatized for the rest of her life by her family. It's like, it didn't matter that she got the help. They just assumed she would always have this chronic case of whatever was wrong with her. But when you look at the actual, in a, in a broader response to your inquiry, like if you look at the insane asylum, like ad, uh, uh, admission reports, I mean, they're just crazy. Like in Wyoming, Utah, there's tons of guys that are, is submitted, are admitted to the insane asylum for polygamy. I mean, it's just nuts. It's like, what's the cause of admission? Polygamy. Um, other, other ones were excessive novel reading. Uh, you know, like, I mean, who, what does that mean? You know, like, I mean, and for I, me, that I'd be in trouble. I know. Right. Like that would be, I would definitely be in there, you know? And like, I, I think that honestly, a lot of times it was because there were just people that were just not, like you said, like quirky or just didn't fit this weird white middle-class norm of how people should behave. And because they didn't, they just assume they were insane because why wouldn't a white middle-class person in progressive era America act just like me? And so we need to get them off the streets before they procreate or before they keep 
plaguing our family members. Like it could have just been family dynamics where these people are put in here to try, we're put in the insane asylums to try to just get them and not have to deal with them anymore. I mean, I, I think that that what you ask is a, a very valid question. I think there's only so much that even historians can deal with because unfortunately no one cared to record the voices of the insane of those people considered insane, you know, like nobody really cared what they thought. They just always thought. And I think that's the broader, like one of the takeaways from my research is that people just assume they knew what was right for everyone, as opposed to just flat out asking, like, why are you acting like this? Like, what is your biggest problem today? Why do you have so many issues? And I, even if they do have issues, if someone is an alcoholic, be like, well, why do you drink? And just trying to deal with the reasons why they're drinking as opposed to deal with the drinking itself. But they always assume in this very progressive era way that they think that they know better than everybody else around them and that they have the right solution because they're, they're either educated or they're professionals, whatever. Um, and they and we just lose and the voices of the insane of those committed into asylums are are silenced because no one thought that they could speak for themselves they just assumed that they knew what was best for them and they didn't because the insane asylums had a really poor uh release rate you know hardly anybody some people were in there for their entire lives and died in there lived there for asylums for 30 40 years before they died uh, and were active members of the asylums, like they had jobs and they worked on the farm or they did domestic things or they worked in the laundry and they did a fairly good job of that, but um, they were never able to be released. Uh, and and in many ways, they saw the insane asylum as literally their home. Well, that, that's a fascinating topic. And are there any big uh, kind of plot points for your dissertation that we haven't talked about yet? Um, phrenology, I think, is one thing we haven't talked about um i could talk about it really quick uh because there's like a crazy story how how phrenology plays into the west is really interesting um and so i did mention eugenics there's one last thing i can mention about eugenics and how it influences institutionalized spaces and then that's that'll be the main talking points of all my research so in terms of phrenology um the phrenology chapter is its own kind of it it exists in Phrenology is playing out in America at the same time as Dorothea Dix and Thomas Story Kirkbride are designing these these institutional life spaces. And um, how my chapter for phrenology really fits into the Intermountain West is so Orson S. Fowler, he is one of the most prominent uh, phrenologists in the United States. He's the guy and his brother. He They're the ones that bring in um that lecture created, they open an office. They're the ones that publish the um, American phrenology journal. That is, Oh, sometimes it's monthly. Sometimes it's quarterly. It just depends. Uh, so anyway, at the end of his career, Orson S. Fowler is traveling throughout the United States. And so the first part of my research focuses on what Orson Fowler believed was the ideal space himself to, to enhance brain function. And he believed that all brains were confined to the spaces that their their skulls provided. So if you were really good, uh, white races in particular are really good at, civiliz at civilizing places, at colonizing places. And that's because they have the uh, larger foreheads. And that's where the organs of the brain were for him, right? I'm not promoting any of this 
the brain does not have 27 organs like you thought. But oh, anyway, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I know I always sound like I believe it when I talk about it. Um, <laughs> no, we, yeah, we get it. <laughs> yeah, so he he thought, he's, he argued that like, and I mean, he he's building off of other phrenologists that have been writing since before the 1800s, but um, that there was, the brain consists of a ton of organs and that white races have larger foreheads and that's where the like intellectual organs are located. Whereas someone like an African-American or an African would have a smaller forehead and a smaller skull size. And that's why they're more quote unquote savage, you know, and like, because their organs aren't allowed to develop to that point of civilization or whatever. And so he, at the end of his career, he goes and he's on this tour, this lecture tour, and he ends up in Colorado and it's like literally like 35, 40 miles from the insane asylum, which is in operation when he gets there in the 1870s. Um, and he cre- and he finds this like land that's public land, and he uh, says that he leases it from the state of Colorado so that he could be able to um, uh, create a farming community. So in his mind, if you wanted to maximize your intellectual capacity, you had to live on a farm. And he he designs this. He has this idea for a farming community. People are going to have to apply to live there, uh, and they're going to grow you know, fruits and vegetables and live there as family units and everything else. And then he dies shortly after that. So it's like three months later he dies. And so his wife, she does all these phrenology lecture tours. At one point she like contributes $18,000 to the Fowler colony company is which what it becomes called. Uh, and that she gets all that money in a weekend just from touring and giving lectures and like doing phrenology readings. And they do create what is now Fowler, Colorado. And it's a small agricultural community that's based off this utopian idea that if you live on a farm, you're going to enhance your intellectual capabilities because you're exposing yourself to the right type of environment. And um, it's this weird pseudoscience type of concept of how skull size and brain size uh, contributes to human function that of course has been debunked by now where eugenics, we just keep seeing it pop up. Like a lot of times people keep tying IQ to heredity and things like that. Um, Phrenology has been fairly discounted. Only there are some evidences of people who still believe skull size influences intellect. Um, And so that's how phrenology fits into this. Uh, There's other studies of the Intermountain West, like, people who study native Americans in Arizona and to prove that they're savage because of their skull size. I mean, it's just a whole bunch of terrible stories of how they're basically perpetuating racial hierarchies by, um, by, by projecting their ideas onto people who are living in the inner mountain West. And then uh, in eugenics, I think the one thing that I haven't talked about yet is what happens is when insane asylums are really struggling to like can maintain their reputation for being these like idealized controlled spaces to cure insanity. A lot of the insane asylum instruct or administrators, they adopt eugenic language like feeble mindedness, which is this idea of usually people who test below of at an IQ level of 50 or below are considered feeble minded. 
they claim that the reason why their insane asylums are not functioning properly is because the states are putting so many of these feeble-minded people into them. And so they promote the opening of institutions for the feeble-minded, which every territory in the Intermountain West does do, or state by that point. So they open these institutions for the feeble-minded. They do not put the amount of care or idea into designing them as they did to the insane asylum. They just kind of pick plots that are already there, already have buildings in Colorado. It's like below the water table. The farming is horrible and they just stick these feeble-minded people in there and they are literally stuck there for life. So they put these people in there to work, but they never plan on letting them out into the public. There's no rehabilitation efforts at all. And that's, that shows that split and that last ditch effort by insane asylum administrators to try to use eugenics to support, to gain a better reputation for their asylums by placing people considered in, uh, inherently defunct mentally into institutions that would be chronic or warehouses to be able to house people that they never saw had any hope for rehabilitation. How long did that trend last? At what point did they stop putting these quote-unquote feeble-minded people into those types of positions? When did this kind of movement come to an end? Well, you know, I'm not, so that is where I start ending my research. So what I do the, the, the further, as I work on my book project and I can get back into archives again, um, that's Someday. where I'm, I know what, oh, one day we'll get there. Uh, I will, um, that's why focus now. So I, in my research so far, I've just looked at these, um, how the insane asylum administrators are suggesting to the state and legislators to open institutions for the feeble-minded and then i've looked at the initial opening stages so that these are taking place in the late 1890s early 1900s and 19 teens and then how long they go i usually end that part of it is once they're opened and like where did they pick to put these feeble-minded places or these institutions for the feeble-minded and like what was the design that went into them and then i haven't explored deeper into that but i don't actually think they've ever really did end i think they've just evolved over time just like insane asylums are so the Mm. insane asylum in utah for example today it's the state hospital it's at the exact same place that the original insane asylum was constructed and same thing with colorado i mean all of them the the current hospitals that are designed to help people with mental illness that are the state funded ones are in the exact same places that they, the insane original insane asylums were. And some of the old buildings are still there in all of those areas. I think maybe Wyoming's is in a different spot. It's in the same town, but I don't think it's quite on the same spot. Um, but the feeble, so I, my projection is, which I need to do more research is that a lot of these um, homes for the feeble minded and these institutions for the feeble minded still exist. And they've just transformed over time to accommodate people who maybe do have some intellectual uh, uh, disability and they function to be able to help with people like that. Cause I know they're still functioning into the 1950s, but I just don't have a ton of research beyond what I did just with their opening and design. Well, great. So uh, thank you for, for all of that. Before we go, do you have any, any history related item that you'd like to recommend to us today? Yeah, you know, I think um, one of the one of my favorite books written by a historian that was super engaging and is well, I think would be um, fun for a popular audience as well as for other academics is by uh, historian Janet Marin, and it's called Prisons, Asylums, and the Public: Institutional Visiting in the Nineteenth Century. 
And she writes about the Northeast, uh, Canada, as well as um, uh, Northeast America, uh, United States. And she compares like this. It's a weird, weird thing that plays out that is different than insane asylums throughout the country as well as prisons where people local communities would visit prisons and insane asylums to make sure that they were running properly and that the people within them were not being abused or mistreated and she goes into detail how these things played out in her book um and i i it's it was a fun read for me even though it was part of my research i really enjoyed it and it helps people understand how uh, Americans in the progressive era were really trying to find this like utopian ideal and institutionalization. Um, another one that I, a book that's really, really fun and uh, can give you a lot of background on Kirkbride and his design for the insane asylum is by Carla uh, Yanni. And his, she's a historian, architectural historian. And her book is called um, it's uh, the architecture of madness and it, she, it's complete with pictures. Um, and it's a really good interactive book book that's scholarly but it also um is it reads more like uh more of a to a popular audience and a lot easier to to follow for people who aren't just trained as historians and aren't trained in academia and so it, it gives a lot of background it shows the linear th- stage it gives um the different stages of the insane asylum and what happens to them and both of them are really helpful to even understand how mental health and mental illness was treated in america uh, throughout the 19th century Oh, those both sound really interesting. Cool. I'll put uh, links to those in the episode notes once this goes live. That sounds really good. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to recommend a book. It was published in 2004, so I'm getting to it kind of late, but it's a book called Blood Done Sign My Name by Timothy Tyson. It's kind of a combination of uh, memoir and history. Uh, The author, Timothy Tyson, grew up in a town called Oxford, North Carolina, and in 1970, a black man was murdered by a white business owner. And in many ways, this, in some ways, the storyline actually talks a little bit about, or it sounds a lot like the Emmett Till murder, but this was a, uh, the, the victim here was in case, in this case was a grown man. But what happened was there was, you know, there's a disputed kind of story about this, uh, a black man went into a white owned business and said, According to white people inside the business, something was said about a white woman, and ultimately all of the the, the owner, his brother, and another relative, I forget exactly who, but anyway, they grabbed guns and started chasing the guy. They ran after him, and then they ended up shooting him in the street in full view of a whole bunch of people, black and white. And um, so it, it, in some ways it resembled the, the, the Emmett Till killings. This was in 1970, so it was you know, 15, 16 years later. But it was uh, in full view. And the storyline that's being told here is from a, the point of view of, this, of the author who was a child at the time. He didn't witness the murder. Uh, so he was so that part's kind of secondhand, but he did talk about the aftermath of it, and of course there were this sparked a bunch of uh, protests in in this small town. The local KKK protected the white owner. You know they came to his house and and kind of stood outside with shotguns and all that, trying to protect the guy. He was arrested a few days later. Um, as you can imagine, it was in this in the South. It was kind of a show trial. Nothing really came out of it. 
Um, and, but the story is, it's an interesting book because it talks about kind of the civil rights movement as it was kind of playing out in real time in this small town in North Carolina around this, the, the murder of this guy. And the author's father was a preacher at the local Methodist church. His, the father was very active in, or he had a very strong opinion of civil rights where he was in favor of civil rights. And so um, he was trying to integrate the church to a certain extent. And he was trying to kind of share the point of view of black citizens with the white citizens that were in the church. Eventually dad got kind of run out of the church um, and forced to forced to leave. And, but it's, it's a, it's a well done. It's really interesting. It talks about kind of basically how the civil rights movement played out in the streets of Oxford, North Carolina in the 1960s and 1970s. So it's a good book. It, uh, it was made into a movie supposedly uh, about 10 years ago. I never saw the movie, but the book itself is pretty good. Uh, Blood Done Sign My Name by Timothy Tyson. Oh, great. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's, it's good. I'm, um, I am about, yeah, you know, about eh, halfway through it. It's good. Um, it's well-written and it's, uh, it, it moves along pretty well. The guy actually is, I think he has a PhD in history, so he's got, he's got the, you know, the chops for it. So it's good stuff. All right. And so with that, uh, thank you for joining me today, Cassie. Yeah. And thanks for having me. I, I, that was fun. I haven't talked about my research since I defended and <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was nice to, uh, to kind of explore it again and see if I remembered any of it. And I do. So that's good. <laughs> that, that, that bodes well for if you're going to be revising it into the book. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yes. <laughs> and thank you all for listening today. This episode appears on the working historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever other app you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at workhistorians. For Cassandra Clark, I'm Rob Denning. Merry Christmas season to you. <laughs>